Greetings to any of you who may be new. We have a very good attendance here today, as Mr. Ames announced, and uh, very grateful. It often picks up before Passover. That's not shocking that it is, but we're grateful so many of you are here. Our internet presence is certainly expanding. We had a fine uh, report from Mr. Charles Aguin about that. Mr. Ames mentioned some of that in his announcements. So the work is continuing to grow as far as our impact is concerned, and we are very, very grateful. But are you and I drawing closer to God? Are we growing spiritually as we look forward to the Passover three weeks from tomorrow night, the Passover three weeks from tomorrow night, Sunday night, April the 1st, we need to focus on what God did through Jesus Christ and what He is doing through Him. We need to think about that. So my subject is how shall Christ or how should Christ live in us? How should Christ live within us as true Christians? How are we honoring God and honoring Christ by the way we live? And as we approach the Passover, as you know, we've read the Scriptures a couple times recently, we're supposed to examine ourselves, and we certainly should try to do that. Turn with me, brethren, to Romans, the fifth chapter, if you would. Romans chapter 5. And let's begin here in verse 1. Therefore, Paul writes, having been justified by faith. We're not forgiven our past sins because we're so good. None of us have been good. I've certainly not been good. And frankly, none of you have been good. We've all made terrible mistakes in our past. So we're justified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Justify means to line up. It doesn't mean to save you. Some of you have had the old electric typewriters where they have self-justifying margins. You know what I mean? The margins are automatically lined up. That's literally what the word justify means. It means to make even, to make right, to line up, and so on. It does not mean to save. Often the Protestants, frankly, in their reasoning, confuse justification and salvation, which are two parts of the same process, but you're justified that is, you're made right from your past sins, that's one part, but then you're finally saved later on, that is, you're saved in a sense in this life through Christ in you, and you're forgiven your past sins, but your ultimate salvation is in the kingdom of God, when you cannot die, in the resurrection from the dead. So as you know, Mr. Armstrong explained, and we've often explained salvation is in three parts. You are now saved in the sense your past sins are forgiven, you are, as the New King James and the original Greek words it, several places, being saved as you grow in grace and in knowledge, and you finally will be saved in the resurrection when you made it. As Jesus said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. I think that's Matthew 24, 13, or very close to that verse. So we need to understand we're justified, forgiven our past sins by faith, faith in Jesus Christ and faith in his shed blood. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace. We're at one with God, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace, that is this condition of being forgiven, because grace is mercy, grace is a gift, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We don't have the glory of God now, but we will have the glory of God. We will be made spirit in God's kingdom someday, and we rejoice in hope of that. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. We all have trials and tests. I've had some terrible trials and tests in my life. I've told you about some of them, not all of them. And you've all had trials and tests. We glory in tribulations. Paul had more than any of us. 
I've never been thrown in jail and beat up or left out on the street, my head swollen because of being hit with rocks and left for dead outside Lystra in a pool of blood, probably, and then got up and walked right on. Paul did go through those things, beating after beating, five times by the Jews, 39 lashes, and innumerable beating from the Gentiles beyond 40 lashes, for his back was just torn to pieces, and it took him weeks to heal, probably, each time. Paul went through a lot, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. These trials help us to be steadfast once we overcome and we face them, then it makes us stronger as each trial comes along. And perseverance, character. We develop God's character. And character, hope. As we develop God's character, then we know God and we know He's going to take care of us and we know it will all work out. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been shed or poured out in our hearts. The love of God is poured out through Holy Spirit, poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, follow this in your Bible. I'll give you a lot of details about these verses. You may not have thought, I, not that I'm very smart, I'm not, but I'm the old epistles of Paul teacher, so I had 30 years to wrestle with these verses. When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Christ did die for us when we were yet in sin. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, as some people do die for others. But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were right in the act of sin, and the world was when Christ died, knowing in advance that people would continue to sin. Much more then, listen, having now been justified, that is, we're made right with God from our past sins, which are forgiven through our acceptance of Christ, not because we're so good, not that we've come to a hundred spiritual push-ups and we try to do good and we try to do good in our human strength and that makes us justified. No, that's not it. You can do a hundred or a thousand spiritual push-ups, you know what I mean, do all kinds of things. I'm going to work my way into the kingdom. No, you can't do that, brethren, because you'll sin along the way and I will, all of us will. You have to be forgiven through Jesus Christ's shed blood and you have to be continually forgiven day by day as you repent of your sins through the blood of Christ. Does that mean you shouldn't try to live by, like Christ? Of course not. You've got to live like Christ. You've got to keep the commandments as best you can, but you won't do it perfectly. And so you have to be forgiven step by step. So having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from God through Him. How? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, you see, made right with God by the death of His Son, Christ's death on the cross, which we're going to picture again, our acceptance of that at the Passover. Much more, notice, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by the precious blood of Jesus. No, we shall be saved by His life. Now, the Protestants don't understand that. We're reconciled by His blood, but we're finally saved by His life. And that's in two or three parts in the sense Christ was resurrected, and some are trying to do away with that as we see some of these documentaries coming out about Christ supposedly dead in a tomb or something. No, we're saved because He was resurrected bodily and ascended to God's throne in the heaven, and He is now our right, 
our high priest at God's right hand, our living head and our coming king, but also we're saved by his life because through the Holy Spirit, he lives his life in us. That's what salvation is all about. He lives his life in us. And that's why I have this favorite verse, Galatians. Write it down if you're new and not familiar. Galatians 2.20. The older brethren will get tired of hearing this, but that's too bad. <laughs> You'll have to put up with me. Galatians 2 and verse 20, where Paul was inspired to write, I'm crucified with Christ. That is, the old self is dead. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the whole thing. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of, and it ought to be in the possessive, and we've checked that, double-checked that. It is in the possessive, the faith of Christ. Not just faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ, which is put in us by the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, we know and know that we know that Christ is alive, that God's way is right, and so we have that kind of faith, His faith. So we, we, we live, Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That is perhaps the best one verse explanation of true Christianity in the Bible. I'm just saying all in one verse. There are many other verses you need to understand or God wouldn't have written the whole Bible. <laughs> but just put it all together in one verse, that's the best place just to describe that aspect of Christianity at least. So we're saved by His life, by Christ living within us through the Holy Spirit. That's what ultimately saves us, brethren. So we need to realize that. We've got to have a profound feeling about the death of Jesus Christ and His shed blood. And as we take the Passover and we see that broken bread, the little hard, this uh, unleavened bread that's been cracked, that represents Christ's body being cracked, so to speak, being broken. And by His stripes we were healed. And we're beginning to lose faith in that in our society today, and even, even within the church of God. The depth of faith that we used to have that Christ was beaten to pay for our physical mistakes and we can be healed. But then that red wine pictures Christ shed blood. And as that young soldier, as I've explained, we can't say that was an Italian. We don't know who it was. The Romans had a conscript army. I think God does that purposely. He just left it alone. We don't know who it was. Some young soldier had it put in his heart, probably by God. I'm sure at that particular case, it was time, and maybe Christ groaned or moaned or something, and he turned and said, oh, shut up, and threw this spear in his side, and the blood gushed out and ran down his legs, and we were saved or forgiven by his blood. We were reconciled to God by his shed blood, the blood of the one who had emptied himself who was our Creator in the very beginning and gave the life of our Creator to pay for our sins. And so that's a very meaningful service and we have to think about those things as we approach the Passover. We're saved by Christ's life, though not just His blood, but Christ's life in it. So after accepting that, then we really have every reason to grow in grace and in knowledge under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Putting two verses together, 2 Peter 3, 18, and then the other scriptures from uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, around verses 12 or 13. I'm not mean 1 Corinthians, I mean Ephesians 4. 
Anyway, let's go now, if you would, to 2 John. 2 John, uh, verse 4. 2 John, that's right near the end of the Bible, as you know, not 1 John 2, but the little tiny book, just one chapter. And John says here, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children. He writes this lady, which may have been a term for a church, walking in truth. Over and over again, John talks about truth, 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 all the way through. First, second, and third John, as we receive commandment from the Father. And I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we should love one another. You've got to go back to what Christ taught, that we should love one another. This is love that we walk according to His commandments, plural, all ten commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning. Remember Christ came along and He said, I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets. He said later to the young man who asked the way to eternal life, if you would enter the life, keep the commandments. All those statements of Christ, as you heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers, verse 7, notice, not a few, frankly, the vast, overwhelming majority, when you understand, many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, if you don't understand that, read my booklet on the Antichrist, the booklet on the Antichrist, who, what is the Antichrist, and explains it thoroughly. Christ must live in us, and the Antichrist is the whole idea that Christ did not really keep the commandments while fully in the flesh, that he has was sort of different. He had, uh, like the Catholics teach, he had a special nature because his mother was the mother of God, and so he didn't have the same human temptations we do, and also that we don't really have to keep those commandments, and we can't. They have all that, those excuses. But this tells us the Antichrist is those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. And some of the Protestant commentaries acknowledge that the particular Greek expression here doesn't mean has come in the flesh. It's an expression in the Greek which means has come, is coming, and will come. It's a continuing thing. Christ as coming in the flesh. How is Christ coming in the flesh today? You go back to my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me, Paul said. And as you walk with God, and to the degree you walk with God, Christ lives in you and me and each one of us. We've got to have that. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Anyone who teaches against that, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we work for. Yes, we're supposed to have works. We're supposed to do good. But that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. Now these Protestants and others come along and they just say accept Jesus and receive Jesus into your life. You know, one of the famous ones said just receive Jesus, invite Jesus into your life. Practically never mention repentance, but if they re mention repent, they don't say what it means. They don't know what it means. Have no idea what it means. So you've got to first repent. Deeply be sorry and so sorry you're going to change and then be baptized, a symbol of the burial of the old self. And then Christ will live His life within you through the Holy Spirit and you can begin to keep the commandments 
to the degree you walk with Christ and let Christ live His life in you to that degree. And none of us do it perfectly, but that's the way that we're to live. And that's the path in which we're to walk. And that's the way in which we are to grow. We grow in that, not that we're perfect all at once in that. Look to yourselves, he says, that you don't lose your reward, but whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine, in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. You, have, you can have Christ in the sense you just invite Christ into your life, but you'd better abide in His doctrine and His teaching, which I've been giving you just now. He who abides in the doctrine, which means simply the teaching of Christ, has both the Father and the Son. So we're to abide in that, and then we have God and we have Christ living within us. So we're to have that, and that's the way we can honor God, and the only way we can honor God. We can't do it on our own. We've got to have Christ living within us, brethren, really understand that. Let's turn now to John chapter 13, if you would. The Gospel of John now, back to the Gospel of John chapter 13. And here, as you know, it talks about the foot washing. Now, before the feast of the Passover, verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world of the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already put in Judah's heart to betray him. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hand, that he come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, poured water, began to wash the disciples' feet. Again, we explain every year, and you know, that was the job normally, in a wealthy household at least, of the lowliest servant, to actually get down and wash the dirty feet of visitors because their feet were often dirty since they walked in open-toed sandals up and down the hills and paths of Israel. They didn't have cars and they didn't have paved roads the way we do today. So their feet would often be covered with dust. And so you would get down and wash the feet, the lowliest servant, and Christ, instead of being the big shot, just before He, the Son of God, died, He knelt down and began to do this to show us an attitude, an attitude we've got to have, brethren, every one of us, and begin to wash their feet. And so then Peter said, you'll not wash my feet, and Peter said, if you, if, uh, Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter said, oh, well, wash me all over. He didn't understand. And Jesus said in verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you're clean, but not all. So here's kind of the double entendre. He's talking about the fact at least one of them, Judas, was not clean spiritually. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. So when he'd washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again. He said, do you know what I've done to you? Do you get the point here? You call me teacher and Lord. He was Lord. He was the master. And you say, well, for so I am. Christ was not bragging, but he was God. So he didn't, he wasn't, didn't feel very big about that. If you had emptied yourself and came down to die for a bunch of ants, I don't think it would make you feel all self-important just to say, well, I am a you know, came from a little higher level than you got, than you ants. <laughs> and that's about compared to Christ with us, except he was far greater than us by comparison. And so he said, yes, I am Lord. That's who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, done this lowliest of jobs, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
You ought to have that attitude. And of course, he's teaching us an attitude to have all through the year called humility, called servant leadership, called service, giving, helping, sacrifice. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And that's the whole point. We should do that, of course, the rest of the Bible shows us clearly all through the year. That is a tremendous thing that we're to learn from this foot washing, which is part of the Passover service. So we do need to think about that, meditate on that, and so on. Let's turn back to 1 John, if you would. 1 John now, just before 2 John, near the end of the Old Testament. So this time I'm turning to the first epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 1. And this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Here is the favorite disciple, in a sense, the disciple Jesus loved. And if you read his books, you begin to realize why. Because John had a spiritual depth in a certain way, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps surpassing the others in the greatest tribute of all, and that is love. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Here is this old man up in his 90s at this time, the commentaries tell us, remembering all those years, even after Jesus died, remembering walking with Jesus up and down the hills of Palestine over and over and over, and serving and helping and seeing Jesus serve and help and give and give and give all day long. And yet as time went on and the disciples finally had God's Spirit, it no doubt hit John, here I took Jesus for granted. I took him for granted. All of them did at times. They didn't understand fully while he was there. That's the why Peter denied Christ three times right near the end of his life, near the end of Jesus' physical life, that is, and denied him three times. They didn't fully get it because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. But by this time, John had had the Holy Spirit perhaps for 60 or 65 years. And looking back on that, he thought there were two great blinding lights way out in the universe somewhere. And they were the ones who created the vast universe, the entire cosmos. And in their mercy and wisdom, they decided to share their glory, their power, their wisdom, their immortality, their love with beings that they would bring into existence and make full sons of God in their time, in their way. And one of them perhaps volunteered and Christ and the one who became Jesus decided that it was the one who was earlier, the Logos, the spokesman in the Old Testament, who would give himself, empty himself, as it says in 1 John, I mean in Philippians chapter 2. He would empty himself, give up and divest himself of the tremendous power and glory that he had and come down and let them kick him, curse him, slap him, put a sack over his head and hit him. Come on, tell us who, you, who, who hit you if you're the son of God. And humiliate him over and over and finally beat him until his body was covered with welts and bleeding and then take him out and crucify him. He knew all that in advance, Jesus did, before he gave his life for you and me. He was aware of that. He knew what was going to happen in advance and prophesied it, predicted it. 
several times, as you know, but is willing to do that because he and the father wanted to share, just like a young couple in a right society. Often young couples don't feel that today because it's, it's the attitude of self, self. We don't want little children to bother us. We want to have fun. We want to go do our thing. But back when my parents were growing up and back before that time, people often did have more children. Some people have more children just through carelessness. I know that. But a lot of them really wanted to have at least three or four, five, six children and love to build a family and to share with that family and that kind of thing. That was the attitude and people did that. That's the attitude the crowd in Christ had. They wanted to share eternity with us. They wanted to share and have other personalities to interact with, to have fellowship with. And so those two great beings out in eternity decided to do this. And one of them came down and John, perhaps as he was writing this, was picturing how he got to see one of those great winding lights from way off in the cosmos who had now become flesh Walk with him, talk with him, slept with him out on a bedroll under the stars with the other disciples night after night. And that man helped, gave himself, served, forgave over and over those who put him down, those who cursed him, and even he was a dying, said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand. They don't get it. They know not what they do. And always have that attitude, always forgiving, helping, serving, having mercy, trying to do good, giving and giving and giving. And John remembered all of that and remembered, no doubt, the foot washing at the Passover time. So that which was from the beginning, which we, we, the real apostles, the original apostles have heard and have seen with our own eyes, have looked upon and our hands have handled. We literally helped Jesus up and down the hills as we pulled each other in and out of the big fishing boats and climbed the bluffs where we got to a steep bank embankment at times and other things. We literally took him by the arm. He who had been with God from eternity, we, our hands have handled. Don't you tell me about Christ. Don't you tell me he didn't exist. Don't you tell me he was a disembodied spirit. John was writing to the Gnostics of his day. I handled him. He was alive, and I saw him heal the sick, cast out demons, literally raise the dead right in front of me, he who was with God from eternity. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. That's one of the main parts of our message, talking about Jesus Christ and what his life was and what it meant and how it ought to reflect in our lives. That you also, get this, may have fellowship, fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's our fellowship. Now and forever, when we understand if we come to really know God, we will have fellowship, spiritually speaking, with the apostles and certainly direct fellowship with them later and fellowship with the other servants of God today who are living and ultimately fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ who is sitting now at God's right hand and all the saints from all the past ages, we can interact with them, talk with them, walk with them perhaps plan with King David or plan with Bartholomew or Philip or one of the apostles. Well, what are we going to do on Alpha Centauri out here? 
what kind of plan, what kind of beings are we going to create or deal with, or what's the story about Jupiter and Pluto and these other planets after the vast universe will interact as part of the family of God and the increase of his kingdom, of the increase of his kingdom. There is no end, as it tells you back in Isaiah chapter 9. An awesome opportunity. So we're, our fellowship is with the Father and with one another. Our fought with the Father and with Jesus Christ, as John says, and that's a wonderful thing. So we have to really understand this. John came to the realization of who Christ really was, who this was who really emptied himself and sacrificed and served and whom he worked with. In chapter 2, 1 John 2, notice beginning in verse 3, now we know that we know him, we know Christ, we don't just know about him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Many of the so-called great religious leaders of the world today in the Catholic and Protestant and other churches, they know about God. Certainly they've heard of the idea. They know about Christ, absolutely, but they don't know him. They cannot know him. They're not acquainted with him because they do not even understand his basic nature, his character, his plan, his purpose. They don't get it. And they're not really acquainted with him at all. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, if they deny the Sabbath day, or they you know, send their young men off to fight and kill, or allow divorce and remarriage for almost any reason, all the other things they water down, they don't know him. I'm not condemning them. God has not called them yet. He has not called them. When I was 17, 18 years old in Joplin High School, I didn't know God. I was cussing and doing bad things. I did not know. I was beginning to hear Mr. Armstrong, but I did not understand. I did not know. I went regularly to the Methodist church. Was I bad? Saying, I'm just going to go to the Methodist church instead of God's church. No, I had no ideas. You know, most of you went to various churches for years. You didn't know. Not your fault. God had not called you yet. So we're not condemning them. They did not understand, but they do not know God. No one can really be acquainted with God unless you have God's Holy Spirit in you and then you exercise that spirit to the extent you walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, and then you begin to experience what it's like to exercise the character of God and then you begin to know and understand what God is and what God is like to the degree that you do that. Then you know God. But whoever keeps the word Truly the love of God is perfected by him or in him, verse 5. By this we know that we are in him, verse 6. He who says he abides in him. You say you abide in Christ? A lot of these outside religions say that. Oh, we're just in Christ and we love the Lord, yes. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Did Jesus keep the commandments? Yes, profoundly so. Did he keep the Sabbath day, the sign of God that points to God being the creator? Yes, profoundly so. Did he teach or encourage his disciples to join the military and go out and fight and kill? Profoundly, no. He did not do that. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. 
but he did not get into fighting and killing. He did not get into politics. He did not get into divorce and remarriage. He did not get into lusting and all the stuff that so many of these even religious leaders have gotten themselves into, as you know. Televangelists who've been thrown in jail or disbarred because of their foolishness and their carnality. You ought to walk as Christ walked. Live as Christ lived. That's how Christ wants us to do. Brethren, I don't write a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. That was the Ten Commandments. And the commandments is magnified by Christ, which doesn't do away with them, as you know, but makes them all the more binding. God, Jesus said, you not only don't commit adultery, you don't even look on a woman to lust after her, otherwise you are already committing adultery in your heart. You not only don't kill, you don't allow yourself to entertain the idea of murder in your mind because you're committing murder in spirit. So the old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. You don't really get it in darkness until now. He who loves his brother, you've got to actually love every human being, loves his brother, abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Very important to understand these principles, brethren, just profoundly important to understand what God is trying to teach us and how he is trying to work with us in that way. Turn to verse uh, chapter 3, 1 John 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him, in Christ, does not sin. Now, brethren, all the way through here, as the Weymouth translation has it, and some of the commentaries point out, generally, it's a present progressive and you'll see that if you read it carefully. Sometimes the New King James even has it spelled out. But it, it means does not ever sin one time, but it's not sin, that is, he does not practice sin. I think they hated to stick practice, practice, practice in there every time, but that's what he's talking about. It's not a way of life. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Have you sinned? All of you have. Did the Apostle Paul sin? Yeah, he murdered a whole bunch of Christians. You know that before he was converted. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Well, it doesn't mean you, you know, it means that you, if you sin, sins continually, practices sin. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness, and there it uses the term, is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins, that is, practices sin, doesn't mean you sin once in a while and repent, but if you keep on sinning in general, is of the devil. Now, you don't call yourself the devil. You don't have horns in a pitfork. But a person who regularly sins, regularly breaks the Sabbath, regularly has hate or lust in his heart or whatever, is of the devil. He's influenced by the devil. He's a part of this world, which is under the sway of the devil. And that's what God says, and Jesus said that directly a number of times. And the devil has sinned from the beginning. That is the beginning of him being the devil. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been, and the Greek word is always some form of ganao, G-E-N-N-A, 
A-O, or various other forms of that word, which means to generate, you know, to beget, to bring into being. It goes back to that root word. We like to have a big electric generator. You all know what I mean. That's where it comes from. And the scholars all admit that whenever this word is mentioned in the Greek, they'll acknowledge that you don't really know whether it means born or begotten. Get that. Please understand that, brethren, and you brethren around the world. That's an important point because if you've been reading this all your life in the King James or the New King James, you keep saying born, 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 but the vast majority of the time that really means begotten because that's what it's talking about when you read the rest of the Bible and God's whole plan. You interpret one scripture in view of the other scriptures. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. So, Whoever has been begotten of God does not sin. That's what it's talking about. Whoever has been begotten does not practice sin. If you practice sin, if you break the Sabbath regularly, if you lust after other women regularly, if you have hate and resentment, envy, bitterness regularly, you're not converted. You, you know, you're, you're not begotten of God. For his seed and the Greek word here is literally sperma, S-P-E-R-M-A, like the male sperm, the very seed of God, not nasty, something God did, and God is not ashamed of it, the very sperm of God, whoever has, excuse me, for his sperm, God's sperm, God's seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. The very nature of God dwells in you, you cannot what? You cannot practice sin. It doesn't mean you cannot ever make a mistake, but you cannot continue to practice sin. If you continue to practice sin, brethren, then God will take His Spirit from you and you've committed the unforgivable sin and you're cut off. But whoever continues to sin, regularly sins, practices sin, uh, is cut off because he has been begotten of God. In this, the children of God, this is what it's talking about, and the children of the devil are manifest. So you don't have the children of the devil up in heaven or in some whatever, you know. He's talking about us here and now. This is how you know who people are here and now. Who is regularly walking with God? Who is regularly keeping the commandments of God? Who is regularly demonstrating the fruit of Jesus Christ living in him? If that is the case, he'll make an occasional mistake because he's human, but that's his way. That's the path he's walking in, you see, because Christ is in him. The very seed of God is in him. And he cannot regularly go the other way or else God's Spirit will be taken from him because then he will deliberately sin. And that's the unforgivable sin. Knowingly, he who sins knowingly, as it says back in Hebrews 10, verse 26, after he's received the knowledge of the truth, then God's Spirit is taken away and he's put off and put out forever. So whoever has his seed cannot sin, cannot practice sin regularly because he has been begotten of God. And this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest by the fruits, you see. Whoever does not practice, and here it is in the New King James, put in there by the translators, practice righteousness is not of God. See, unless you practice righteousness, you're, you're not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the very beginning, God wanted Cain and Abel to live each other, to love each other. He wanted others to love each other, to help each other, to forgive each other. But human beings always have something going on. They have envy, jealousy, resentment, bitterness. 
and lack of forgiveness, that's not God's way. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil. You see, he was jealous because his brother outrighteoused him. <laughs> I guess he felt jealous, and so he killed his brother. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. If we really love the brethren, that shows we love God. How can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? He tells us later in this book. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's a very powerful expression, brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Please think about that, meditate about that, pray about that, if need be, fast about that. If you have bitter resentment and you just can't love others in God's church. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. No, we do not have an immortal soul. If we had an immortal soul, then murderers would have an immortal soul. But there is no such thing as an immortal soul. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. A constant laying down of our lives, giving, helping, serving, as I've told you, and I do not do it perfectly all the time, in fact, very imperfectly, so I don't mean to be bragging. It was a certain point that I did better than normal, way back when. And I've done like that some since, and many times I don't do like that, but I always remember the early baptizing tours. I went out with Raymond Minera in 1951 for 10 and a half weeks and about 98,000 miles, or 111, I think. Burke Minera, 1952, 119,000 miles. And then I took Herman Hay out on a baptizing tour. And I was the leader of that tour. He was my senior in academic and editorial areas, but I was his senior in working with people and had been on tours, and he hadn't. So I was the leader for half the summer, 1953. All across the United States and up into Canada, meeting hundreds of people, losing sleep, driving ourselves. Mr. Armstrong never made us do that. He really didn't. In fact, he got on to us. You guys need more sleep, and you be sure you get your sleep. You know, We were all gung-ho you know, out there to try to reach these people. We knew we couldn't reach them all, and uh, we tried to do our best and got by on five and a half or six hours sleep, night after night after night, except the Sabbath. But we had a big pillow in the back seat, and while Raymond was driving, I'd sleep, and while I was driving, Raymond would sleep, or Burke, or Herman, or whatever. And so we made it by taking cat naps in the back. No air conditioning in those old cars, but we had to just make do. <laughs> and some of you remember, I'm sure Mr. Crockett remembered the South in those days. No air conditioning in most of the houses. So you'd go in to meet someone, and the sweat would start pouring off of you. And if they had a bunch of fans, they'd set up four or five fans all coming at you, and you'd kind of sit there, and you'd perspire anyway. But you, you somehow managed to stay awake because the fans were whirring, and it was hot. The, weather, the air was moving, at least. <laughs> and you kept going somehow. And when we baptized people, if we would bring them back to their house and kneel down to lay hands on for God's Holy Spirit, sometimes we'd get up from their linoleum floor, and they had old you know, many of them old houses, and they were poor, God's poor people, sometimes the floor would be covered with our perspiration because it was just hot. And you get down below the fan, or maybe there is no fan, and anyway, we served, we gave, we just drove ourselves. 
And all during the summer of 1951 and 52, when I was 21 years old and 20, all my friends were out having fun and they were dating and they were going, some of them, to Estes Park camps. Their dads had more money than I did. You know, I never lost any sleep about that, never lost one second sleep. I had not one date, didn't see any movies, no fun, nothing. But all I remember is being so grateful to God and I mean that, brethren, deeply grateful to God that I somehow was put in a place where I was giving and giving and giving and giving and more or less had to or felt I did with the circumstance. Then sometimes you come back to college and you let down because you're in a routine and, you know, you don't do as well. Or some of us here can let down. But sometimes God brings out the best in us by circumstance. But when we're giving and giving and serving the best we can, there is a sense of exhilaration a sense of deep, profound peace and accomplishment because we know that we're walking with God during that time. And we experienced miracle after miracle during those tours. I could tell you about it. You might not always believe me that they were miracles, but I know they were the way we were delivered from all kinds of situations by God's mercy. But at any rate, the more you give, the more you get. It's a living law. And so God says in verse uh, here, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John writes, verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need. Now, brethren, we can't help all the starving people in Ethiopia. And we can't rescue all the women who are being raped and beaten and humiliated in Darfur and all these horrible places. I wish we could. I wish we could. I'm a fighter if I could go there and do something, but I couldn't. I'd just get shot. But we can help those nearby, and we can do all we can to get out the message of the coming government of God, the kingdom of God, and help people understand and pray, Thy kingdom come and prepare the way, and then that will straighten out all that stuff. But we can help our immediate neighbor in the church, and we can help our immediate neighbor even in the neighborhood. Jesus, you don't find one record in the New Testament. I want to point this out. I'm not saying that Protestants or Catholics are bad. They're not in that way. They mean well. But God never said, you know, you don't find where Paul or, or Peter or Jesus or anyone were taking up great big offerings and sending them down to Africa or sending them out to China. I remember when I was in the Methodist church, we had two little spaces. Some of you may remember that. Two little slots in the Methodist offering envelopes. One slot was for the local church and the other slot was for the missionary or for China, often was for the starving people in China. We're always talking about the starving people in China, you know. And I remember putting half and half a lot of times, one nickel or one dime in each slot for the starving people in China. Well, it didn't really help them. I'm not sure any of, the, any of them ever got it as far as that's concerned, you know, all the administrative costs and all this other stuff that gets in the way. But we meant well. But we can't save them. But we, and God doesn't call us to help people all around the world we don't even know. But we should help our neighbor who lives next door or lives in our neighborhood. The Good Samaritan didn't send his money off to some poor people in the jungles of the Amazon in South America. He helped the guy that was right there on the road in front of him, you see. If you have an opportunity to help someone nearby in your neighborhood, or if you're community later experiences a tremendous tragedy, a flood or a terrible outage of electricity or lack of food, help. Try to help all you can. God wants us to, even in that way, to have outflowing concern, to develop that attitude. 
And when you meet a beggar, you don't always have to give to him. You have to try to discern, is this guy for real? But if you feel he's for real, it doesn't hurt you to give him something or if someone seems to be in real need. And sometimes we harden our heart. I've done that on occasion. I figure, oh, look at this guy. He's too slick looking. He looks like he's healthier than I am, so I won't give him anything. <laughs> and we have to, it's so hard in our society with all these fakes out there. But it's better to give too much than to give too little. I think you realize that when I talk about it that way. It's better to give too much than to give too little. Outflowing concern because you're developing that that Jesus Christ had. If he waited till all of us were perfect before he died for us, we would be in big, big trouble. <laughs> you know that. He died for us anyway. So whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word. Oh, let's do good, and yet you never help anyone personally. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, to try to honestly help each other, have them over for a meal, give them some food, go to their house and help them out, do everything you can. We should do that among ourselves in this church, right here more, and you brethren around the world, in your churches more, and in your neighborhood even for outsiders. As it says in Galatians, we're to do good to all men, especially, Paul wrote, to those of the household of faith. You start with those who are brothers and sisters in the church, and on out from there. But we've got to develop the habit, the attitude of giving, helping, serving. That's Christ in us. And try to do it as a service to God and as a Christ in that attitude. So that's very important that you understand. So let's do good not just in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. My brethren, God is developing a family. Please think profoundly about that. The great God, that blinding light out in the furthest stretches of the universe. God wanted a family. He and Jesus brought us into being and gave us life and breath and provided this, this planet for us. If we'd been just a few degrees closer to the sun, we would all burn to death. Or a few degrees further away, we would freeze to death. Everything is set up for us in God's mercy. He wants us to be a member of His family. That's what it's all about. The kingdom of God is the family of God grown great. More and more come along. As you know, Abraham began to have, you know, Isaac and then Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and then 12 sons of Jacob became what? The 12 tribes of Israel, the whole nation of Israel. Millions of them eventually. And today, encompasses the whole United States, and Canada, and Britain, and Australia, and New Zealand, and the Anglo-Saxon Celtic peoples of South Africa, and so on. Hundreds of millions, in a sense, when you add them all up. The family of Abraham, the family of Jacob. That's the way God is. God's kingdom is God's family grown great. So the atmosphere, the attitude in God's family is, and the entire Bible tells us, it must be based on surrender to the Father. That's the first thing, surrender to the Father and it must be based on outflowing love, outflowing love for fellow man, a spirit of service to fellow man, and warmth and affection and kindness and all those things. Otherwise, brethren, if you have, do not have that attitude, if you do not build that approach, and if among us here, 
if among us who are working in the office, if among us in your church in Kansas City or Los Angeles or Portland or Sydney or Melbourne or down in Cape Town or Johannesburg, wherever you may be, brethren, around the world, we have people fighting each other, competing with each other, envying each other, resenting each other. That's no good. That's no good. You know that. We must not have that. So God wants us to be part of his family and to build this atmosphere, this approach of love and kindness and warmth and outflowing concern and service. Otherwise, we would be arguing, envying, competing with each other who's going to beat the other guy out and having hurt feelings and little personality wars throughout all eternity. Throughout all eternity, that's what we would have. And we would be absolutely miserable throughout all eternity. God is not going to have that. There's no way he wants that in his kingdom, in his family. So we've got to get over it. So let's understand that. God will not have that kind of attitude in his eternal kingdom, which is his eternal family, the family of God, the family that should love each other, help each other, serve each other. So... In John 13, let's go back to John again. You find a description of, of the attitude we ought to have. And I think I gave you this a few weeks ago, but I'll use it again. John 13, verse 34. You all know this. Jesus said, just before he died, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. And brethren, yes, we've got to keep the commandments. We've got to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God around the world. All those things, absolutely. And we're trying to do that with all our hearts. But if in our own personal lives we don't have that love and we don't have that kindness, we're not developing the basic characteristic of our character, our personality, our approach that can make us fit to live in a loving family relationship with others throughout all eternity. And so that's all part of it. There are many aspects, and this is a tremendously important aspect of true Christianity, and we've got to really grasp that and understand that and respond to that. So let's do that. How should God's love be expressed by us? Well, I've given you a lot of that already, but let's get some more here. Turn back to Matthew 22 if you would. Matthew chapter 22. Again, this is a very uh, basic scripture. You all know Matthew 22. And let's begin in verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer, the Jewish law, was testing Christ and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You're to learn to worship God, love God, adore God. Look out the window when you're praying if you can and see the trees and the sun and the moon and the stars and the vast universe out there and say, Father in heaven, thank you for your universe. Thank you for making us your image to be your sons. Thank you for all the things you've given. Thank you, Father, for every good and every perfect gift and learn to love God and appreciate all the things that He has done in the past, all the things He is now doing in your life and in the work and in His church 
and all the things he will do that you know by faith he will do because he's going to back up his word. And so you can thank him for those things and love him with all your heart and all your mind and all your being. This is the first and great commandment. We've got to learn to do that. Therefore, we will keep God's Sabbath day. It's not a lesser commandment. It's a huge command. It was given the test commandment. Very important to God. I'm just saying it because that's the one the world tends to pick on, as you know. <laughs> They're all important. And the second is like unto it, Jesus said, the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now we all love ourselves unless we have a mental sickness. Some people don't love themselves. They get all messed up and frustrated and down on themselves and even kill themselves in suicide or all kinds of things. But the normal human being thinks, well, I've got to take care of myself here and I want to get ahead and, and I want to look good or I want to feel good or I want to have a lot of money or I want this pretty girl to marry me or this handsome man or, or I want to get ahead and be important or whatever. We all tend to think that. Josh is looking over at his wife. He had that evil attitude when he first saw her, probably. Oh, she's pretty. <laughs> Picking on Josh, uh, he won't mind, <coughs> we hope. <laughs> anyway, we all, we all looked at our wives. We thought, wow, I want, I want her. She's so pretty. And hopefully we had other thoughts as well, that she was wonderful personality and many other things that we learned to love. But at any rate, we love ourselves. That's not too hard to do but we've got to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, you need to brush your teeth. You don't brush your neighbor's teeth unless you're a nurse in a hospital, then you literally have to brush a sick man's tooth or something or give him a bath or something. I remember a young nurse giving me a bath one time when I was in the hospital. I was 18 years old and my hands were lying on pillows. I had these terrible burns and that was kind of embarrassing because she was going over me with this cloth. She kept it under the sheet, but you know, she wasn't staring at me, but, oh, this is, this is embarrassing. <laughs> but so you learn to basically bathe yourselves. You learn to brush your own teeth and take care of yourself. That's okay. You don't have to do that for others, but you should hope that you will help them if they had to have money to have a toothbrush, to have enough to eat, to have enough that you would try to give it to them, loan it to them, give them money, help them in every way you can so they can have a good and decent life to the best of your ability and have that outflowing concern for them, hoping that they can achieve their human potential. And if their human potential is enabling them to have a better job than you have or to make more money, you should say, well, thank God, God knows what's best. Again, I don't do that perfectly, but I'm glad that two of my older sons make more money than I do. I'm not jealous because they're my sons. I'm glad they do. I'm not jealous for one second. I'm glad that that is the case. And they're in something that is money-making, and I'm not, of course. So I'm very grateful that they're successful in that particular way. And as I think, and as I get older, I try to bring in young men on the telecast, like Rod King and then Wally Smith, who's really a lot younger, and put them on the telecast so that they can gradually move in and take over for Mr. Ames and me as we get older. And Mr. Ames, of course, is not older. He doesn't want me to say he's older, but he's... He's only six years behind me, so he's gaining on me all the time. <laughs> anyway, we want these young men to take over, and I want them to be successful. And I've told my wife that. She knows. I said, well, boy, if Wally brings in more responses than I do here in another six months or a year, or Rod King does, more power to them. I mean that. I hope they will. I, I shouldn't sit around and be jealous. They're younger, stronger, better looking, 
Now, my wife doesn't think so, I hope, but they, you know, they're younger looking, and we hope they do their best. But at any rate, they don't have the perfect outflowing concerns toward everyone all the time, but on that, I'm trying to work on that and have that approach. I think we all should have that approach the best we can to try to really hope everyone, help everyone else achieve his or her human potential, not just say, I'm going to keep what I have and everybody else stay away regardless. So... This is the attitude on these two commandments, loving God with all your mind and all your heart and strength and soul, on these two commandments, and loving your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The whole law of God and the whole way of God, in a sense, is based on how to love God and how to love your neighbor, and even the prophets are, because if people do that, Collectively or individually, they are blessed. And if they don't do that, then God says He'll bring His punishment on such a nation or whatever. These two commandments, love toward God and love toward your neighbor. So that's the basis. But then if people don't do that, we should get mad at them if they make a mistake or put them down and never forgive them, right? No. No, that's not right. You turn back to Matthew chapter 6. And here in verses 9 to 13, he gives what we call the Lord's Prayer, the sample prayer. And right after that, Matthew 6, verse 14, Jesus said, The Son of God said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And as we come before God at the Passover, brethren, please understand that. You're coming before God to, acknowledging his will, to acknowledge His willingness to forgive you. In a sense, you're going through the symbols of Christ's broken body and His shed blood because He forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. And so you've got to forgive your brother. But if you will not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Learn to really forgive one another. Get out. Get rid of it. Just forgive and forget and go on. Don't carry it. You say, well, they haven't perfectly repented. Well, that's too bad. I'm sure there are many people where I haven't perfectly repented, where I've hurt them. Maybe I didn't even know that I hurt them. And other times I did, but because of being carnal or partly carnal in years past, maybe I didn't perfectly repent or whatever. But it's best for them, not for me, but for them, if they forgive so they don't carry that around with them, you see. It hurts them. Acts chapter 20 tells us something else. Acts, if you would, brethren, chapter 20 and beginning in verse 32, here's the Apostle Paul talking to the elders at Ephesus, and he just warned them about some of your own selves will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, verse 31, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He said, please don't let these false teachers take you away. Men right in your midst will go up and try to split the church. Wake up, understand that, Paul warned them. But now, brethren, verse 32, I commend you to the God and to the grace, a word of His grace. Yes, grace is important to God. Mercy, forgiveness, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, those who are set apart. I have coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. I'm not after you. I seek not yours but you, Paul told them. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in this way by laboring like this because Paul actually worked, as you know, as a tent maker and perhaps in other jobs. 
Now, why didn't Mr. Armstrong do that? Well, the whole world has changed. I think you understand that. Paul was never able to reach more than a few dozen or a few hundred people at a time. Mr. Armstrong was able to reach millions at a time by devoting himself to radio and publishing and doing those things. And I guess Mr. Ames and I could go get part-time jobs and uh, being a shoe salesman or something and somehow make a few broadcasts, but the work would never get done the way it is today. And Paul said, have I robbed others by, uh, by not taking getting tithes from them and so on? And he showed in another place he may have made a mistake in, the way, in doing that, but he tried to go above and beyond, and that was good, the attitude. I've shown you that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said... Here are words that we would not have had any other way. God let them come later through Paul. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's so important. Learn to give, to help, to serve. How can I serve you? How can I help you? Not how can I get from you, but think how can I and my personality and my talents and my strengths and my abilities at this time help this other human being? We don't always think that, but try to think that as you go through each day. And when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. I'm reading this because, brethren, it gives you a little bit of a flavor of the apostolic church. You know what I mean? They had the personal love. And these men grabbed Paul and hugged him, and some of them were crying, knowing they might not ever see him again. And so they accompanied him to the ship, and then he took off. And in fact, he may never have seen them again, so far as that's concerned, these particular men. So we're to have that attitude of outflowing concern, and we really need to have that very, very much. And yet we, in God's church, sometimes have coffee pot wars. I told you some of you about that years ago out west somewhere. We had uh, a church that needed a coffee pot, and some of the women were fighting about who was going to get the coffee pot, or they were going to get it, I guess, by committee. And then this one woman just buys it herself and, mar and marches in the next uh, week, and there it is. And the others were jealous and really would hardly speak to her because she got the coffee pot. She got the credit for buying the coffee pot. Wow. But you see the human nature there. Maybe the first woman should have been more perceptive. She knew it was going to hurt their feelings, but maybe she didn't know that. And the other women should have said, well, you know, Joanne or whatever her name was got the coffee pot. That's wonderful. We don't have to take up a collection now or whatever. But no, she's going to get the credit. So we're fighting over that. There's envy, jealousy, lust, greed, hurt feelings, personality upsets, personality clashes, competition. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the important one? All these things we have to fight all day long, every day we live. Every day we live. And so all of us need to understand that, brethren. We've got to ask God to clean us up and scrub us out and get rid of that. So we have coffee, coffee pot wars and we often have people envying each other in God's church and competing with each other in God's church. And that's not good. Try to get over it. If so-and-so gets to be a deacon before you do, can you thank God for that? And know that if your heart is right and you're working hard, you too will be a deacon someday. If someone else is ordained an elder and you think you should have been, can you be humble and, be, and say, well, God's will be done? If someone is ordained a deaconess and some of you women say, how come she got to be? Well, I think she talked more the, 
to the ministers and maybe she flattered the ministers and oh, let's, start, let's all talk about it. Let's analyze it. Let's gossip about it. Politics. Well, you know, is there ever politics in the church? Yes. But is politics the main consideration in God's church? I honestly say no. We're trying to do the best we can, but we don't do it perfectly. And maybe some ministers, some of the time, don't have any politics, but some ministers have more politics if they're human. And the only perfect ministers are Mr. Ames and me, but I worry about him a lot. <laughs> and he worries about me an awful lot. <laughs> so we all have politics. We all have human nature. You know what I mean? And we have to pray and ask God to clean us up. Luke 10 tells us another aspect of these things, brethren, something you're very familiar with, but let's turn there. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. A lawyer uh, stood up and, of course, asked Jesus, what shall I do to be saved? And he then gave the right answer to love God with all your being and your neighbor. But then the lawyer, verse 29, wanted to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Is he just talking about someone in the church? Who is my neighbor? Let's listen to this. Is it just someone in the church? Then Jesus answered, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Who was this man? The Bible pointedly does not tell us who he was. Was he a Jew? Was he a black man? Was he a Mexican man? Was he uh, somebody else of some other race or background? We don't know. Who was he? He was a human being made in the image of the great God. That's who he was, a certain man. And he fell among thieves, stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead, and now by chance a priest, very religious, very self-righteous. He's got all in his best suit and his expensive tie, and he comes by and passed on the other side. Well, this guy looks pretty dirty. I better not bother with him. Likewise, a Levite comes by. Jesus knew the attitude to those religious leaders, and so he thought he was pretty righteous, and he passed by. But a certain Samaritan, now Jesus mentioned a Samaritan particularly because the Jews hated the Samaritans, looked on them as kind of fake Jews because they were kind of half and half, some were mixed. But he used this example on purpose, no doubt. As he journeyed came, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. See, this man had compassion on this man who fell among thieves, and we don't know who the man was who fell among thieves, what his background was, what his religious background was, his racial background. Did he have a degree from Harvard? Was he chairman of AT&T? You know, we don't know. <laughs> he probably wasn't any of those things, but I'm just kidding. It didn't make any difference, if you follow me. He was a human being. A fellow human being is your neighbor. So when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured in wine, little tiny things that's interesting. Centuries later, they're beginning to realize that wine is a good healer and oil is a good healer. And circumcising baby boys at the eighth day when the vitamin K factor, the blood clotting factor hits the peak is a good thing. They learn these things 3,000 years later sometimes, <laughs> long after God gives us the hint in the Bible. Kind of a little aside there, but it's interesting. Little, little things like this. This is the mind of God we're reading. That's what the Bible is. So he poured in oil and wine, set him on his animal, brought him to me to an inn and took care of him. And then he told the wine or the innkeeper, 
to take care of him if there is more. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And of course the Jewish teacher had to say, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. Learn to be that way. Was it a man in the church? Probably not. May not have been a Jew at all. Just a man, a human being. Now, he didn't send his money off to Africa or South America or to the starving Chinese. He just, it was a man right in his face. He didn't have to go look for him. You can't save everybody in every other land. But here was a chance and an, uh, an opportunity, a challenge, you know, facing him right there. If that's put right in front of you, respond and learn to develop the attitude of giving, helping, serving in your neighborhood, in your family, in your church and give to God and help God's people and then help others too to the degree you can with this attitude. Very important. So we've got to learn uh, that lesson. Back in Proverbs chapter 21, if you would uh, turn at this point, chapter Proverbs chapter 21 and here uh, in verse uh, 13, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard don't shut your ears to the cry of the poor. As a church, let's try to do more. We might even get some projects if we have a, a terrible storm coming through here or something. We maybe should later get some committees or teams or groups that can help and serve. Let's get in the habit of this. He says down in verse uh, 35, uh, verse uh, 25 it is, the desire of the slothful kills him, for his hands refuse to labor, he covets greedily all day long. You see, people talk and they don't work. I'll do good, but they don't do anything. But the righteous gives and does not spare. The righteous will give and give and give. You see, God has, sees an attitude there. I'll always remember up in Oregon when I was first in the ministry, an older lady, I think even a few older years older than my mother, named Chloe Shippert, one of Mr. Armstrong's friends. And every week, I was up there practicing my preaching on the church and I later realized that. I was just sent there to practice on them, I guess, and they put up with me. And every week, Chloe would write me this letter. Oh, that was such a fine sermon and helped us. Well, I'm sure that they had some real problems, some of them, because I was very new and very experienced. But that older lady tried to encourage me and then she helped me. I've told you this other story, how she brought this woman by and they cleaned up my apartment. I said, oh, there's no problem. Well, they came in and they found all kinds of things that needed to be cleaned up that I didn't even know, you know. She gave. But it wasn't just me. I, if that were the case, you might think she was flattering the minister. But I heard as I lived there, she was helping people all through that church. She was helping, giving, serving, taking food to people, visiting the sick, calling people who missed church and say, can I help you? What's wrong? Everything she could do. She was giving and giving and giving. And God would reward her for that. She died faithfully in God's church, by the way. Many others have had that attitude, but I think Chloe had it very, very well and exemplified it. Turn to 1 John chapter 1 again. 1 John, right back at the beginning, 1 John chapter 1. And here we are, back almost where we started. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We have seen God. That great being came out of the cosmos. 
And we saw him. We talked with him, walked with him, handled him with our own hands. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father. And we saw him all day long. For three years he was manifested to us. We saw God giving, helping, healing, serving, forgiving. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Brethren, we need to have that kind of fellowship in this church right here. We need to have that kind of fellowship, brethren, in the churches around the world of giving, helping, serving, laying down our lives for one another and for our neighbors and for our communities to the degree that it's necessary, the degree that we can, and have fellowship in that way. For our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So we have fellowship with God and through God in us and through Christ in us, we have a deeper and a more profound fellowship with one another. And that's what it's all about. So let us all surrender the self and the selfish will and vanities and envy, jealousy, lust, greed of ourselves and seek for Christ, Christ, the true Christ of the Bible, to live his life within us. And then we will be doing our part to be part of that fellowship, the real fellowship that is the family, the spirit-born family of God forever. That is why you and I were born. That is why God called us. That is why Christ shed his blood for us, that we can be part of that fellowship based on love. 